Hello and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. We have been building up to World War I over the last few podcasts, and now here we are. We have Laura Vogt, Curator of Education and Interpretation at the National World War I Museum and Memorial, who did a fantastic interview with Gene Ann. Now, before I turn it over to Gene, I would like to mention a handful of things. There is a ton of planning and research that is done and a good amount of discussion early on in our podcast in regard to the editing needs as we start a recording. As an example, the interview with Laura was completed February 22nd, 2022, and we recorded this episode January 22nd, 2023. Jean Ann is always reaching out to museums and experts and representatives from national landmarks. So if you would like to make it easier, you guys can always reach out to us, tell us about your venue, Tell us about the topics you'd like to contribute to. We can go into more detail on a topic we've covered. We are obviously moving forward and doing this chronologically. But at the end of the day, we are looking for interactions with our listeners and folks who have something to contribute. With that, we have had requests for some funny outtakes. There are some funny outtakes, which, you know, those have been edited out and on the cutting room floor. But we do have one here where I was eating while we were about to get started, so it makes for for a funny little clip. I'll play that now, and then we will introduce Jean Ann. Because episode Another. episode two doesn't look to, oh the recordings are long. Okay. Yeah, and the recordings are long with episode one as well. So this might need to be broken up into two. All right, are you done eating? Because I've started recording. Let me get the last bite. Last bite. All right. <laughs> Can you hear me chewing? Yeah. <laughs> It's like a dog eating dry food. <laughs> Rice cakes are not a good podcast snack. They are not a good podcast <laughs> snack. No. Sorry, I'm, I'm dieting. Is what it is. All right. So the episode that we've been talking about for a while has finally arrived. World War One, or as it was called at the time, the Great War, changed the world as people knew it. By the end of the war, many of the great empires had fallen the Russian Empire, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire. Kaiser Wilhelm II told soldiers departing for the war, you will be home before the leaves fall off the trees. He couldn't have been more wrong, but he wasn't alone in his thinking. Most of the great powers involved in the war didn't anticipate the war to last very long. You have the Western Front, with fighting mostly taking place in France, Belgium, and Italy. And then you have the Eastern Front with fighting taking place in Russia and in the Balkans, the Middle East, and various other parts of Africa. You have 30 countries in six continents involved in this conflict. Hence the World War. Hence the World War. Today, we're joined by Laura from the National World War I Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Welcome, Laura. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. Could you just tell us a little bit about what you do at the museum and the museum itself? I'd love to. My name is Laura Vogt. I'm the Curator of Education and Interpretation at the National World War I Museum and Memorial, and um, it is a real pleasure to be here with you. I have the opportunity to help steward the stories of the nation's World War I Museum, uh, and our archive, we've been collecting since 1920 in Kansas City, Missouri. And we opened our um, beautiful museum back in 1926. 
Uh, we have one of the most global collections of World War artifacts uh, and have been telling this uh, global story um, really since 1926. And it's this era in history, right? 1914 to 1918 or 19 or 23, depending upon which uh, historian you are. Mm -hmm. um, it's this time frame in history that really sets the stage for the 20th and the 21st centuries. It, it changes everything. And I get to talk about that time frame in history and its enduring impact on us today. Sure. I mean, World War One is definitely one of those events that doesn't just change society. It changes the globe. It changes the world map. It, you know, countries that existed before it don't exist after it. Countries that didn't exist before it exist after it. You know, what were some of the causes of the First World War? Historians really continue to argue about that. <laughs> Now, many of your listeners may remember back when you were in high school, uh, there was an acronym that uh, was yep. included in many history textbooks, right? Militarism, alliances, imperialism, and nationalism that make that acronym of Maine. Uh, there are some historians that just say that it was inevitable. There are other historians who say that individuals were kind of trying their best, but they just kind of slept walk into this catastrophic war. We, we can't entirely understand what got us into that war completely, but that is, it is easy to see how this set of leaders who had made a whole series of, of peace agreements and alliances beforehand, who were in fact building larger and larger armies and navies, uh, who were looking to technological innovations to help expand their empires, how all of these different forces led us to this brink of cataclysm. And then you happen to have this moment where uh, what many expected to be the third Balkan war, right? This very regionalized conflict of Serbs uh, and Croats who wanted to be given their freedom within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that people thought that it would just remain within that region. And instead, it explodes and involves all six inhabited continents before, uh, really before the end of 1914. So in just a matter of months, it's how, how quickly everyone, uh, not everyone, but how quickly these different nations become involved is a part of the fact that, and it's the positive in some ways too, we were becoming this global economy. We were really becoming this globalized world where people were all in these societies and cultures and businesses were all interdependent. So just to sum up those causes that you discussed of the First World War again, you have a system of secret alliances, militarism, nationalism, economic imperialism, and the media. In many ways, it seemed as if the world was poised for war to begin. You will often hear historians say that Europe in 1914 was a powder keg, but there must be a spark that ignites the conflict. In the case of World War I, that spark happens in Sarajevo. The spark to the war was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir to the Austrian-Hungarian throne and his wife, Sophie. They were assassinated by a Serbian nationalist 
named Gavrilo Princip on June 28, 1914. He was a member of a secret Serbian society known as the Black Hand. Serbia had hoped for independence. Germany and Austria-Hungary were allies. Russia was an ally of the Serbs. Each country's allies were quickly brought into the conflict. In the early 1900s, Great Britain entered what was known as the Triple Entente. It was an alliance or an agreement among France, Russia, and Great Britain. Kaiser Wilhelm II, the leader of the German Empire, he was the son of Queen Victoria's oldest daughter, Princess Victoria, who married the German emperor. He ascended to the throne at the age of 29. Militarism, which is the building up of arms, the building up of one's military. Kaiser Wilhelm II hoped to create a military stronger than Britain's. Keep in mind, the majority of monarchs in Europe are related, many of them cousins. Queen Victoria had married off her children well, and she is often referred to as the grandmother of Europe. Do you think it was a question of ego that didn't allow some leaders because you look at, you know, people like Kaiser Wilhelm II, who, I mean, the Nikki, the Nikki really, yeah, the Nikki really letters. Oh, absolutely. Can you ever divorce, um, you know, some of these decisions from the personality who's making them? I mean, even just some of the things that family members would say, whether it was about Tsar Nicholas II or, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm, I mean, People, I think a lot of people who don't know history, who aren't like in the meat and potatoes of it, don't fully understand the concept that you have Queen Victoria's, these are her grandchildren. And there's kind of like these squabbles all over the place and like, oh, remember him and, you know, that guy again. And Oh, absolutely. There's a there's a spectacular uh, documentary by Jay Winter. And he actually, in this documentary with the BBC, they take you to the summer castle of Queen Victoria where they have built, it's the playhouse, but the playhouse is not a playhouse. It is a literal play fort with trenches that these cousins would actually be playing in when they were kids, right? Because they are, they are in fact related to each other. Kaiser uh, Wilhelm and the uh, King of Britain and Tsar Nicholas, like there, there's all these interconnections. So it is easy to see as some historians say, it, of course, this is where it's going to end. They started playing in trenches together when they were kids. It's going to land out that way. Each of these leaders have their own strengths and their own weaknesses, just like all the rest of us do. Yeah. And in these moments, right? These brief, you know, this day in a life, it is those strengths and those weaknesses that help bring them to whatever decisions they make. And for all of them, I could definitely say they didn't plan on it being this extended war that it becomes. They all felt that it was going to be this war that was going to end by Christmas. You know, it was an opportunity to prove their strengths, was an opportunity to keep their word within alliances as need be. And there are, just as in any government, it's not singularly that one head. There are a lot of other people who are advising them. And you can dissect what what a government might have wanted out of the the war and why they might be choosing. And, And the nice thing is, if you go back to the primary sources, these leaders will literally tell you why they each got into the war. Now, historians 100 years later might say, yeah, you might have said this, right, in the case of the United States, 
Woodrow Wilson said, we got into the war to make the world safe for democracy. But not only a present day historian, but individual citizens a hundred years ago would say, oh, but is America safe for democracy right now? So there's a lot of um, wiggle room in how you know, people might say what the, the reasoning really was, right? There's that, yeah. that space for perception and understanding and dissecting. That's part of the fun of the work that we get to do in history, yeah. right? Is to find those facts, bring them forward, and then come to our best conclusions. Let's just take a minute and discuss who's involved in this war. On one side, you have the central powers, German Empire, Austrian-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria. The Allies, or the Entente Powers, was a coalition of countries led by France, Britain, Russia, until they leave due to the Russian Revolution in 1917, Italy, Japan, and the United States when we enter in 1917. When war broke out in 1914, President Wilson urged neutrality. And he said citizens should be impartial in thought as well as action. Now, this is easier said than done. As we discussed in our Wilson podcast, you have a number of different hyphenated Americans. This is a nation of immigrants, many recent arrivals. You have millions of German and Italian Americans who some among their number supported the central powers. You have Irish Americans who, some among that group, have a deep distrust and even hatred towards Great Britain. We may have been neutral in name, but economically, we have strong ties with the Allied powers. Trade with those countries increased from the millions to billions. With Europe plunged into war, American-made goods and food was greatly needed. The United States also gave loans. So there is a lot invested in this war. The United States gave loans to the central powers as well, but much less. I mean, I always say, you know, follow the money. Look at how much money the United States lent out when we were neutral in theory, right? Mm -hmm. You have ultimately billions of dollars resting on whether or not certain countries continue to exist. It is, it's not just because of the Lusitania that the United States got involved in the war. I, and if you remember, cause that's what so many American students remember from their high schools, it's the Lusitania, but the Lusitania actually happens, you know, basically two years before the United States gets involved in, uh, in world war one. That's like saying um, you know, something that happens in 1999 is the exact reason why 9-11 happens. Or um, as we are recording this in 2022, uh, in February, it's like saying, you know, something that happened right before COVID really hit the United States is affecting something that is this moment. And, and it is, it's a pretty long period of time uh, in the in-between. So yeah, the idea that, I don't know, economics, uh, that there are social issues and social factors, that there's that political uh, influence as well, uh, that all kind of inform uh, not only the United States involvement in the war, but all of these other nations. You know, when you look at a modern map, it, the majority of the world, people might look in a textbook now and the textbooks actually give a variety of numbers. They say 26, 28, 32 different nations, more than 30 um, different nations that were involved. 
because it actually is a surprisingly tricky question. But if you look at a modern map that is color coded to whether or not a nation 100 years ago was involved on the central powers, the allied powers, or uh, they were involved, but they didn't actually declare war, it's almost the entire map. And so each of the reasons why those individuals, and they write these individual stories, that these individuals end up going to war is different and nuanced and a whole other podcast. Uh, so I'd love to, love to talk to you about that sometime. <laughs> now, Laura, you mentioned the Lusitania. We talked about the economic factor that pulls the United States into the conflict, but there are two political events which make the United States' involvement more and more likely. At the start of the war, Great Britain initiated a blockade of Germany to prevent trade and getting needed supplies. Germany considered the blockade illegal and in turn declared the waters surrounding Great Britain to be a war zone. The lack of critical supplies called for desperate measures and Germany practiced unrestricted submarine warfare. Ads were placed in American newspapers, including the you know newspapers like the New York Times, warning U.S. citizens of the dangers of traveling on vessels flying flags of nations Germany was at war with. In May of 1915, a British steamship called the Lusitania was torpedoed by a German U-boat. The ship had about 2,000 people on board, including Americans. While the British claimed it was a passenger liner, the Lusitania was carrying war goods as well as people. Almost 1,200 people were killed, including 128 American citizens. While some clamored for war, the United States remained neutral. So when we talk about, you know, causes of, you know, the war of bringing the United States into World War I in the media, events like the Lusitania, you have newspapers that are writing all of these articles that are really inciting people to support war. The second event I want to mention is, of course, the Zimmerman Note. The Zimmerman note or telegram had been intercepted by the British. The German Foreign Secretary Zimmerman sent a telegram to Germany's ambassador in Mexico. It proposed an alliance between Germany and Mexico. Mexico should take arms against the United States and that Germany would help regain lost territory. Now, if you remember, Mexico lost a considerable amount of territory, two-fifths of their territory during the Mexican-American War from 1846 to 1848. So that's that lost territory that they're talking about. And the idea was, listen, preoccupy the United States so they don't get involved in this conflict and we can finish our business and do what we want to do. So this coupled with Germany's continuation of unrestricted submarine warfare no longer made it possible for the United States to remain neutral. Wilson asked Congress for a declaration of war in April of 1917, stating that the world must be made safe for democracy. Again, as you mentioned earlier, that argument could be hotly debated in 1917 and at this very moment. You know, one of the things that I always try to hammer home when, when teaching about World War One is that it was a very different kind of war. You have all of these technological advancements. You have tanks, you have machine guns, you have airplanes, you have for the first time with Zeppelins, you have bombs dropping from the sky, and you also have trench warfare. Do you think that trench warfare is to blame for how lengthy the war was? 
as your listeners probably know, trench warfare doesn't start in World War I, right? They had used it in the Russo-Japanese War. We had used some of it in the Civil War. And so these military strategists knew that it was effective. And what became really clear quite quickly in 1914 is just this stalemate, right? This, this in some instances across the Western Front, you have each able to deploy trenches so well, so quickly that it's only a matter of inches that people are, you know, that, that anyone wins or loses over the course of years that people are dying. So yeah, I think that trench warfare certainly creates the environment for this long, stagnated period of, of battle and conflict that, that takes place all across the Western Front. Now, we, we have to realize that the World War isn't just the Western Front, right? So you also have this whole conflict that's playing out around the Middle East, right? Uh, you've got Gallipoli and all of these other battles. You've got fights going on for Jerusalem, people who are looking to, to use cavalry charges in, in these spaces as well. Uh, you have a conflict that's happening throughout Africa, There's conflict that's happening uh, uh, in East Asia. So there are other factors at play, not just the trenches, but I, I think being able to deploy that, to deploy that innovation in a in a way so quickly, it certainly slowed that progress. And if you don't have a definitive winner quickly, you end up with some of these other really terrible stories and aspects of the war. Now there are, uh, if anyone has the opportunity at the Museum Memorial, we do a battlefield tour once when global travel allows. We take a, a battlefield tour over to Europe or to the Middle East. And, and you can see just how stagnant those spaces were. They, they were not moving. Germans built, I mean, almost small cities of concrete. Some of those trench spaces, they actually have hand, they had hand stenciled beautifully the interior walls of these spaces. So, uh, you know, people were very well fortified. They are building railways up in, you know, up mountains in, in Italy and the like. So people were prepared to be there for, be there for a long time. In terms of fighting, World War I was a very different type of war. It's a different type of warfare, very much a modern war with destructive weapons. You have chemical or poison gas, which was being used as a weapon, the Germans used chlorine gas, which attacked the lung tissue and could lead to death. There were chemical warfare units and schools to train soldiers in how to use this new technology as a weapon to kill and how to survive if it had been used on you. You know, there weren't gas masks readily available for soldiers to use to protect themselves. In addition to chlorine gas, we see green gas and mustard gas also being used during the war. Now, Germany wasn't the only country to utilize poison gas against its enemies. The Allied powers used it as well. Another thing I feel we need to talk about is the use of Zeppelins. Now, these were airships. The technology for airships had been around for a while, but it wasn't until the early 1900s when the technology and prototypes had been perfected by a German count 
named Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Now, that doesn't sound like a name for a bad guy in a movie. I don't know what does. So Ferdinand von Zeppelin, who he was actually sent to the United States many years earlier during the Civil War to report back on military strategy and weaponry. And while he was there, was taken on a hot air balloon flight where he gets this crazy idea for this prototype. So during World War I, Zeppelins were used not only for reconnaissance, but also for bombing. The Zeppelins were limited in the amount of bombs that they could hold. But this is the first time that we're seeing bombs being dropped on cities from the air. Advances in technology and the airplane will make this a game changer during World War II. World War I was also a different type of war due to the use of trench warfare. Now, trench warfare was not a new concept created for World War I. You have the ancient Roman armies using entrenchment. You have trenches being used in a number of different wars in the 1700s and 1800s. But trenches were dug to protect soldiers fighting on the front lines. Lines of trenches were connected to each other and together created this, you know, intricate network that allowed for both protection, but also as a way to bring in needed supplies. Trenches contained things like command posts, supply storage, first aid stations, kitchens, even latrines, which of course is a fancy word for a bathroom. In an attempt to break the stalemate and advance, European armies attempted all sorts of crazy things to try to protect themselves as they crossed no man's land. Now, no man's land is, of course, the land between, In between the, trenches. the trenches. Yeah. yeah. They tried things like high bulky armor to stop the bullets, iron netting, think, you know, that medieval chain link armor that knights used to wear, but nothing worked. Guns were more precise and the weapons of war more deadly. I do want to talk about life in the trenches a bit. You know, the smell, the piles of dead bodies, human waste. You know, latrines are located in the, in the trenches. You have rats running around. You have lice. Some soldiers also got what was known as trench foot. And this, you would get this from standing in wet boots and wet socks for hours or days on end. You know, today we know and understand that, you know, especially for soldiers, it's important to keep your feet dry. Soldiers didn't have extra boots or socks, and it can cause numbness and can even lead to amputation if it's not addressed by a medical professional. European countries, by the time the United States get involved, have been waging war for years. And of course, on April 6, 1917, when Woodrow Wilson asks Congress to declare war, it's a game changer when the United States gets involved. For soldiers who, by 1917, by the eve of U.S. involvement, you know, you have European soldiers who are just exhausted. They're running out of supplies. They've been beaten down by years of war. To what extent did U.S. involvement in World War I kind of help to change the tide of the war? Significant. It really is that game changer, just the fresh infusion of individuals. When you consider that one in three Frenchmen between the ages of 18 to it's 35 was killed like 1917, that's a whole generation. So there is both mentally and physically just this vacuum, right? And so this fresh infusion of Americans who have been eating well, these Americans who are coming in and we have not been on any sort of food rationing 
implemented mm-hmm. by the government. As a matter of fact, we never went on a, a food no. rationing space. We just asked All recommendations, yeah. yeah, to volunteer. You know that these individuals um, are coming in and they have had a lot to eat. They have uh, many of them have been separated from the war by an ocean. So they're coming in with this idealized uh, concept of war, uh, what it might be. And so there's this, there's energy that's there, let alone some leadership like that of John J. Pershing. And and he has had some of this experience and and he is a, a, a very apt leader who is able to work with others within the alliances. And, and they are able to provide the, some of those extra extra that is needed. A good friend of the museums, you would say, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the Americans who do make that difference in the turning of the tide, you know, that many Americans would say they even won the war. But if you take a look at it, the military that is the winningest of the last hundred days is not the American military. It is in fact, the British military. And without them in that last hundred days, that last push, then the war would not have been won by the, by the allies. And so it's the British who, in fact, won the war. But if it wasn't the French who took the brunt of the the forces that that had so many of those consequences at the very beginning of the war, it would never have allowed that time and that space for the British or for the Americans to have even gotten into the spots that we were. So really at the end, when you look at it, it's the French and their sacrifices that won the war. When the United States gets involved, we need soldiers to fight. So the Selective Service Act of 1917 was passed narrowly, I might add. This was not a popular piece of legislation. This is the first mass conscription Every eligible man at first between the ages of 21 and 30 was drafted, but then was extended to include men between the ages of 18 and 45. They had to register for the draft. Not every single man between those ages will be drafted, but many were. What narrowed the pool down were physicals, eye exams, and of course, cognitive exams. The army it's important to note, is segregated during World War I. It's still segregated during World War II. Black soldiers were treated differently than white soldiers. In fact, many black soldiers, instead of being able to fight on the front lines, were put in divisions in charge of supplies or construction and labor. Now, make no mistake about it. Black soldiers did fight on the front lines and with distinction, you know, groups like the Harlem Hellfighters. Almost 400,000 Black Americans fought in World War I. When we get to World War II, we will talk about, you know, more about how fighting for freedom and democracy abroad wasn't the only place Black soldiers were fighting for freedom and democracy. They're also fighting for it at home in the United States with an end to segregation and Jim Crow laws. Segregation and racism led to the creation of organizations like the Emergency Circle of Negro War Relief. Segregation left Black Americans to fend for themselves and to organize their own groups in order to aid Black soldiers and their families. Not only is the propaganda machine churning to get men to enlist and to support the draft, but the propaganda machine is working overtime to sell this war to the American people. 
The Committee on Public Information was created in 1917. Getting people to support the war and you know to prevent people from speaking out against the war effort, you have posters, news articles, advertisements, films, speakers traveled around selling war bonds at these big mass events. The war was even sold to the youngest of American citizens, even to children. So-called war toys, things like doughboy soldier dolls or Red Cross nurse dolls, or even field hospital toy sets complete with wounded and recovering soldiers. These are all being marketed to children. U.S. involvement in the war not only meant fresh troops, but more food and needed supplies. While the United States didn't have food rationing on the home front, American citizens were encouraged to have meatless Mondays and wheatless Wednesdays. Patriotic cookbooks were sold that swapped out typical ingredients that were needed for soldiers abroad with other items. So this is where we find things like potato bread becoming common, which, by the way, is delicious. My son loves potato potato bread. bread. Yeah, it's a big staple in my house. So rations and food for war. 900,000 tons of food products were shipped from the United States to soldiers fighting throughout Europe. Now, this was no easy feat. I was reading on the World War I Museum's website that it took 70, 70, 70 trucks to move the food rations for just one division. So imagine what it took to, to bring food to the soldiers. Being able to feed our soldiers on the front lines was of great importance, and citizens back home were asked to make sacrifices. Herbert Hoover, who will eventually become president, was named head of the newly created U.S. Food Administration. Now, typically, U.S. soldiers' rations in World War I, much better than what soldiers were eating during you know, the Civil War. Unlike the hard tack soldiers ate during that war, you had field bakeries that were providing U.S. soldiers with freshly baked bread. You have emergency rations that are being packed in tins to you know, protect from exposure to gas and other vermin and to ensure soldiers had food to eat if typical supplies couldn't get through to the men fighting on the front lines. It's estimated that it cost about 26 cents a day to feed each soldier. Now, while that might sound like a bargain today, the total cost was over $700 million to feed the U.S. soldiers. Now, it's also important to have fresh fruit and vegetables. And if fresh fruit or even dried fruit wasn't available, lime juice would be given. Of course, we know today that lack of vitamin C can cause diseases. I'm sure you've heard of things like like scurvy. Yeah. French troops, for example, just to give you an idea of rations, had wine as part of their rations. Their rations were cut as the war lagged on and they, you know, cut off sometimes almost completely toward the end of the war. Unlike European civilians who had been dealing with strict rations and European allied soldiers who had seen rations getting cut as the war lagged on, American soldiers were well fed. And it's why they were referred to as doughboys by other soldiers, because our soldiers were well fed. They were nice and pleasantly plump. Mm -hmm. Use of more complex code words are also being utilized during World War One, and they were used to prevent enemy nations from knowing certain information. You know, we have the radio now. Just to give you an idea, the term ashes was used to mean enlisted Marines. Automatic rifle was ratio. A truck was cedar. I'll include a a link to the full list so you can see what other terms were used. During World War I, 
We're seeing images of war, photography, even video of life on the war front exist. It's being shown, you know, before movies and movie theaters. Technology is improving. You no longer need these, you know, big heavy equipment to take someone's photograph. And, you know, it's not nearly as small as today's cameras. You know, we can whip out our cell phones and take a picture rather easily. But it's certainly easier than in the Civil War when people wanted to document the war effort. On the home front, you see the creation of victory gardens. People are being taught how to grow and can fruits and vegetables and meat so that we can conserve and save things for our boys fighting overseas. Women in World War I, you know, as American men are being mobilized for war, American women are too. Gone are the days of saying that a woman's place is only in the home. Women took up jobs in agriculture and factories. Women volunteered for the Red Cross and served as nurses. Women are doctors. Women are tending to wounded soldiers. Women joined the Salvation Army and prepared dressings for wounds. They mended uniforms. They helped to write letters for wounded soldiers. They helped to prepare hot meals for our soldiers. They worked as switchboard operators or hello girls, radio technicians, drivers. We remember, wait, we remember the radio girls, the hello girls rather from our podcast on the radio. Yes, yes. The role women played during the war effort further fueled the suffrage movement. Women are serving in the Navy and the Marine Corps for the first time. So it's very much all hands on deck. Okay, we are going to end part one of our coverage of World War One, and then we are going to continue in part two. And thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.